Hello. Hi. Welcome to Drinking the Kool-Aid. Welcome. I'm Megan. I'm Hannah. And today I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and I watched Dateline Mystery and it was called Romeo Killer. And then I also listened to the Generation Y podcast and it was rad. <laughs> I liked okay. it a lot. So if you want more information, check that one out. Before we dive into this story today, I do want to mention that many people believe that the wrong person was actually convicted for this crime. Okay. So we're just going to let everyone come to their own conclusion on that. I'm not really going to say a lot. (laughs) It all started in Bethlehem, New York a small town just outside of Albany, and the population is about 35,000. The crime rate is pretty low. The Porcos were married for 30 years, and they had two sons. Jonathan was 23, and he was a naval officer. Christopher was 21, and he was a student at the University of Rochester. Joan Porco was a speech therapist at a local school and her husband, Peter, served as a law clerk for a prominent judge, and he was very well respected. The Porcos kept a very clean home, expected a lot from their sons, and they were kind of strict. Jonathan seemed to thrive on that structured life, and he did really well in school. But Chris didn't. He just struggled academically, and he didn't really like the strictness. Yeah, I feel like there's really no in-between. You either love it or you freaking hate it. Yeah, you just never know what's going to work for each individual. Yep. In November of 2004, everything changed for the Porco family when Joan and Peter were brutally attacked and their son, Chris, became the prime suspect. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. And Chris said, quote, I would never do something like that. I can't even imagine attacking anyone, let alone my parents, in that way. It's just not who I am. It's a tragedy. Not really just for me, but for my family. My mother is now going to live alone, and that's very hard for me to stomach sitting in here. So at the time of the attack, Sarah Fisher was Chris's girlfriend. And she described him as having, like, a really magnetic personality. She said he was always smiling, made people feel good, and he was a smooth talker. He was on the swim team, and from the age of 16, he worked for his hometown vet. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He would uh, clean and set up for surgeries, and he also held animals in the exam room. Yeah, see? (laughs) See, it's so fun. I would love that. (laughs) It would be cool. Yeah. Especially with the kitty cats. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but like everything else too. Maybe. By the way, last time I posted uh, pictures of my ferrets, I like had so much confusion because people were like, I thought you had cats. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) well, we do. I just talk about the cats nonstop. That I mean, I really do think that's probably where we went wrong. Yeah. Because I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, surprise, I do have ferrets too. There you go. And a bearded dragon. <laughs> okay. 
So the vet says that Chris was the only young person that they ever kept on staff. He was a popular student, and he scored a 1,400 on his SATs. At age 14, he joined a youth group at his church, and he was funny, social, and loved jokes and pranks. Oh, okay, like model student here. Sure. It starts off sounding that way, doesn't it? (laughs) Driving around one night, Chris took a detour, and he pointed at a house, and he looked at his girlfriend, and he was like, I used to live there. He said that they had to move because his family just wanted to downsize, and Sarah was like, well, this is super strange because she knew it was a lie. Her sister's friend actually lived there and had for a long time. And the house that he pointed out was pretty large, and Chris's parents were not super wealthy. What the heck? Right. They were actually described as more of middle class. So they had enough money to get by and get Chris and his brother Jonathan everything they needed. But it wasn't the lifestyle that Chris wanted. His friends began noticing that something was kind of off with the stories that he was telling. Oh, so this is more than one occurrence. Yeah, Got it, okay. definitely. Chris said that he had a servant that cooked him meals, and he had just purchased his own property in North Carolina. Whoa. And the home had a jacuzzi on the roof, so it was, like, super okay. lavish. Right. And all his friends had that same reaction, and they were like, let's go there. This sounds amazing. I'd like to be in the jacuzzi on the roof. Yeah, they were like, we want to see it. But then he would always come up with an excuse of why they couldn't go to this home. When Chris pledged a fraternity, his lies grew bigger. He told his fraternity brother, Gregory Whiteside, that he had a trust fund that had just matured and his account was in the Caymans. So he was telling everyone that he was a millionaire and he was making plans with people to do things that he flat couldn't afford. Oh, shit. And he told a friend that they could go backpacking in Europe. The friend was like, dude, I don't have money for the plane ticket. And he was like, I got you. Yeah. Chris was like, that's not a problem because not only do I got you, but he said he could buy a cabin on the plane for them. He was like, I do it all the time. Oh, the letdown. Right, exactly. To keep up with his lies, he actually did buy a lot of things for his friends so that they wouldn't become suspicious. Uh, When they would throw parties, he would buy all of the alcohol for the entire night. Oof. That's pretty spendy. I mean, that's a lot of money. That really is putting out there, man. Like, that's, especially if you don't have a lot. Yeah. Ooh, man. And they said he would drop, like, two to three hundred dollars for each party on the booze. Yeah, nope. So, um, he even bought an entire vending machine for their hall. What? Yeah. So, he definitely is making it look like he has a lot. I mean, that is... Decently convincing if I saw somebody buy a whole ass vending machine. Right. I'd be like, okay, you've definitely got some cash. (laughs) In 2002, there was a burglary at the Porco's residence on Thanksgiving Day. 
Detective Chris Bowdish went to the home and found that two laptop computers were missing. That was it. There was a window screen that was cut open, but it looked staged. He just felt like something was wrong. I was going to say, that's very specific. Yeah. And police could tell that this was not how the person broke into the house, but they couldn't really get any information, so it didn't go past that. It was November 15th, 2004, when Peter Porco did not show up to work at the Albany court. This was extremely unusual, and his colleagues were concerned, so they actually sent a court officer, Michael Hart, over to check on him. He got to the house and noticed there was a key in the door, like sitting in the lock. So he turned the handle and pushed the door and realized it wasn't locked. The key was a spare key that was usually hidden in a flower pot by the front door. Michael saw blood on the front porch and the doorknob and he stepped inside the house. There was a big blood stain on the closet door and there was blood all over the floor. Michael looked to the right, and he saw Peter Porco lying at the bottom of the stairs on his side, and his eyes were wide open. Oh, no. I know. That's so terrifying. Peter had been hit 16 times in the skull and jaw with an axe. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Michael called his boss and he told him, he was like, I just walked into a crime scene. You need to send the police now. The person dispatched just happened to be the detective that was there two years prior for that strange burglary. Oh, my God. Mm hmm. That was Chris Bowdish. He said there was blood in every place he looked. It was everywhere. Oh, no. He said, quote, the house wasn't what we call tossed. The drawers weren't pulled out. They weren't dumped. Yeah. Joan's purse and all the contents were undisturbed. I was going to ask about the purse. uh Uh-huh. And so that was actually sitting in the dining room. So nothing was taken from that. Because that's a big fucking one. Like, Mm -hmm. come on. Like, if you're breaking into somebody's house, you're not just going to go straight for the freaking laptops. If you see a purse sitting there, you're going for the purse, too. Right, Obviously. Yeah. So Chris Bowdish also knew Peter Porco, and he was told that there was another victim upstairs. So he goes running, and he had to step over Peter's body to get up the stairs. Oh, my God. And he gets to the master bedroom, and same thing, covered in blood. He saw Joan lying across the bed, and she had the same hack marks in her head that Peter had. There was an axe at the foot of the bed. I mean, this really feels personal because it's such overkill. So many hits. Right. It was initially believed that the attack took place all over the house because the blood was in every room. But investigators realized the attack only happened in the master bedroom. And it was from its spraying, I suppose. No. The explanation for the blood getting everywhere is horrifying. Oh, no. Oh, God. God. I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm ready. This is just... So crazy what happens here. Okay. And, like, it's crazy that they even were able to piece this together, honestly. 
So at some point after the attack, Peter Porco regained consciousness. Oh, my God. He got out of bed and he headed to, um, well, he was in the master bedroom, okay? So he gets up out of bed. He heads into the bathroom and he stands in front of the mirror over the sink and was just bleeding all over the sink. He eventually left the bathroom, walked back through the bedroom, down the hallway, and down the stairs and got to the first floor. Oh, my God. He goes into the kitchen and unloads the dishwasher. Stop. Then he starts digging around in the fridge and makes a lunch for the day. Because he's in fucking shock. Uh Uh-huh. He had no idea that he was hurt. And it's like your body is running on that adrenaline at this point. Oh, my God. So he was going through his morning routine and getting ready for work. After Peter had been brutally attacked, he even went and paid his son's parking ticket. No. And so Chris had the parking ticket and Peter went and filled it all out, like filled out the check and put it in the envelope. And we know this because the envelope had blood all over it. That is so sad. I know. It's just the worst to me to think that he's, you know, on autopilot here getting ready for his day of work. And it's like uh, instead of calling and getting help because he doesn't know. And we have no idea how this could have played out. However, it is possible that if he would have stayed in bed and the blood would have coagulated instead of running out of his body, maybe there was a potential, but we never know. Right. It still could have ended this way. It's just really sad to think about. There was no forced entry to the house, but the house key had been in the door. Investigators wondered if that meant maybe it was a family member, a friend, or even a neighbor. Joan was clinging to life, and the paramedics were struggling to get her oxygen. Detective Bowdish approached her, and he said, quote, Did a family member do this to you? She nodded her head up and down, and he said it was a very clear yes. There were other people in the room that also saw this happen. First responders, Kevin Robert, Jim Reagan, and Dennis Wood were present, and Dennis Wood said, quote, I've never seen anybody with this massive of facial and head trauma and still be alive and actually able to communicate like she was. Okay, so that's a lot of people do. Yep, they all saw it. Joan was able to follow directions, such as straighten your arm or stop moving your legs. Then the paramedics watched as she nodded her head in response to the detective's question about her attacker. Detective Bowdish asked Joan, quote, Did Jonathan do this to you? He says she clearly shook her head back and forth to say no. He asked her, quote, Did Christopher do this to you? Joan shook her head up and down to say yes. Minutes later, she was rushed to the hospital and police began searching for Christopher. They did establish an alibi for Jonathan as well, so they checked into both. Jonathan was stationed 600 miles away in South Carolina. Chris was 232 miles away in his dorm room at the University of Rochester. He said that he found out about the attack when a reporter called him at 2.45 p.m., which, if that's the case, I I just want to say, like, 
if a reporter calls and tells you that your parents have been attacked before the police, that is horrendous. I know. Whenever, I hate that shit. Whenever they find out, like, through the news or on TV or something, mm-hmm. instead of how they should respectfully, it yes. pisses me off beyond belief. Exactly. And so Chris said that, you know, he gets this call from a reporter, and he is in disbelief and shock after receiving the call. So he hangs up with the reporter, and he called 911. And this is what he says to the dispatcher. Quote, Hi, my name is Chris Porco. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. I was wondering if you had any information for me. The Rochester police were dispatched to go get Chris from his dorm room. They were like, dude, just hang tight. He was brought to Bethlehem and they did a six-hour interview. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. That ju- I mean, it just sucks because, you know... You just find out. You just find out, but this is also the person that Joan I said know, it was. I know. So they have to check. Detective Bowdish said that he never made eye contact. So Chris never looked the detective in the eyes, and he always looked down when he was talking. Hmm. He was asked if he was the one that attacked his parents, and he said, quote, You know, I can't say enough. Absolutely No. I would never do anything like that to anyone, let alone my parents, who I love dearly. He said that he had been watching a movie in the student lounge and he fell asleep on the couch. His fraternity brother, Josh Felver, said that Chris was absolutely not there that night. Oh. He was in the lounge from 2.15 to 3.30 a.m., And it's a square room with some couches and a TV. Like, you cannot miss it if somebody's in there. There were several frat brothers in the room, and they all said there was no way Chris was there. Ruh-roh. Mm-hmm. Joan was unconscious in the emergency room. She was getting surgery for many hours. When, uh, so after the police went through their interview with Chris. He was able to go to the hospital. When he got there, he told his former youth minister, Joe Catalano, all about the interview and what had happened to him. Rather than being concerned about his mother, he's talking about himself. Joe was actually really thrown off by this and thought this was super odd behavior, and he felt like he didn't sense any grief, like Chris just didn't care that his parents had been attacked. The media was banned from going inside the hospital, but there was a loophole for one reporter. There's always a loophole for the freaking reporters This somehow. is a good one. Times Union senior reporter Brendan Lyons got to go inside because his wife was in the hospital giving birth. All right, well, that's a damn legit reason. I mean, how do you, you can't. How do you time that, right? Yeah. So he slipped into the ICU visiting area so that he could just observe things, you know, watch what's going on. He was like, the universe put it right in my damn lap. How could you not take it? Brendan said that it was so obvious to him that the family was already suspicious of Chris. He said that when the family would talk about things, they would all cluster and go down the hallway in a group to, like, whisper away from Like, away from the room? Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Chris was the suspect in the case, and he was there visiting his mother. So they actually had to put a police officer in the room at all times with her. Joan did survive the attack, but she does have facial disfigurement and brain damage. She lost her left eye and has suffered multiple head fractures. But came out on top. But she came out. Hell yes. She is alive. Damn warrior status. Chris claimed he was at school and Bethlehem is about four hours away by car. And a student actually did confirm that they saw him out jogging the morning after the attack. I mean, but. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Chris owned a bright yellow Jeep Wrangler with big tires. So it stands out. Everybody knew he drove this vehicle. A day and a half after the attacks, a neighbor of the Porcos called the police and they said, Hey, I saw a yellow Jeep in the Porcos driveway around 4 a.m. on the night of the attack when I was leaving for work. Uh Uh-oh. That's not good, huh? So the Jeep was impounded. And when the police searched it, they did not find a trace of blood. And there hadn't been a cleanup either. They also did not find blood evidence on Chris's clothing or his belongings. Investigators finally realized why this could be. Chris worked in a vet's office. He was trained to avoid contamination and Uh he knew how to clean up. Yep. So. Didn't even cross my mind. Mm Mm-hmm. It would make complete sense that he would know how to efficiently avoid the blood. But they also had another problem in the case, too. Joan originally shook her head yes, saying her son Chris was the attacker. But she ended up recanting. She said she did not remember saying that it was him. You know, and I wondered if you were actually going to say that later on. Mm -hmm. I was curious if that was coming. But, like, also, how much are you expected to remember when you get slammed in the fucking head 16 times by an axe? That's exactly right. And you went through multiple, like, surgeries and all sorts of, you know, healing and stuff afterwards. So, So, yeah, it's completely, you know, it's completely understandable that you wouldn't remember and Mm -hmm. honestly i would feel like the thing that happens right after is gonna be the legit thing because it's right in your head right then and there before you black out and lose those memories possibly there actually is going to be uh some explanations on that of why it could be also okay Mm -hmm. so we'll get to that later but yeah i'm glad that you kind of mentioned that like hey (laughs) Brain damage, you just don't know what's going to happen no, with that. No, you never do. So. A security camera at the University of Rochester shows a yellow Jeep leaving the campus at 10.30 p.m. and traveling in the direction of the New York State Highway. And this is on the night of the attack. At 10.45 p.m., the Jeep took exit 46 in Rochester. The toll person remembers the yellow Jeep and remembers a young person was the driver, and that they were driving at an excessive speed. At 1.51 a.m., Chris took exit 24 in Albany, 
We know this because Atella remembers seeing the yellow Jeep come through. Yeah, that's what, that's what you get for driving a bright yellow car. Right. At 2.14 a.m., the burglar alarm went off at the Porco's home, and it was deactivated with the master code. Oh. Chris went into the garage, took his parents' axe, and headed to their bedroom. And I do want to actually mention here that I'm saying it's Chris because he, you know, later is convicted for this. Right. Um, but people still don't believe it's him. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, well. Wait, it is Chris the one that's... Okay, what yeah. the fuck, Megan? I thought for sure <laughs> that this whole time yeah. you were going to make me think it was him. Okay. And then you were going to be like... Surprise! And then you're gonna tell me like some crazy shit about another person that makes it sound like it Mm -mm. could be, and I was like totally ready to be bamboozled. No tricks here. Okay. So I just want to make sure. Okay. So Chris went into the garage, took his parents' axe, and headed to their bedroom. He attacked Peter first, then Joan. He was in the home for about two hours, and his Jeep was seen by the neighbor at 4 a.m. At 5.12 a.m., the Jeep is seen re-entering the New York State Thruway, heading back towards Rochester. And the college camera and cameras on the roof of a medical center picked up the Jeep entering the lot at 8.30 a.m. I mean, I don't really feel like other, like, there's many other bright yellow Jeeps with giant tires at that school, but I could be wrong. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Now, even though the timeline seems to fit, it's tough to say for certain that the bright yellow Jeep heading in the direction of the Porco's residence then heading back to the campus belongs to Chris Porco because the license plate wasn't captured and you cannot see clearly, like, who the driver is. Okay, but But again, (laughs) how many yellow Jeeps do you truly see in a day? Right. I couldn't even tell you the last time I saw a yellow Jeep. And they can confirm that, like, in all of the frames that they see this vehicle, there are the same decals, and there is a mud stain that was captured. So. Yeah. I mean. I mean, mean, it was already pretty damning. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It would literally be like if I was driving into the parking lot, like they caught me on camera driving into a parking lot. They're like, oh, well, this could be her with the black car and the silver door, but (laughs) there's like, I don't know, other cars with a black or that are black with a silver door. Like, come on. Right. In the area, like, you know, it's me. (laughs) Well. Chris later changed his story, and he admitted that it was actually his Jeep on the surveillance video. He was like, yep, that's me. Yeah, no shit. But he said he was actually just moving it to park off campus. By the time he returned to the dorm lounge, his frat brothers were sleeping, so that's why they didn't see him. Oh. Yeah, so he wasn't in there all night. He just went out to move it and then went and fell asleep while watching your movie. Correct. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Chris said, quote, the surveillance cameras on campus didn't show me going to the thruway and they didn't show me going home. They show me going off campus. If I wanted to do something like this, if I wanted to sneak home on the thruway, why would I take a big yellow car? 
I mean, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> right. We agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. Makes no sense. <laughs> Chris says that the timeline is not proof that he had anything to do with the crime. But investigators have pointed out that the scene was very staged to look like a burglary. And Chris claimed that he never left the campus on the night of the attack. Yet we have footage proving that he did. That he literally left it. Mm -hmm. Yep. We know the alarm went off at the Porco's residence and somebody knew the code to turn it off. Yet the alarm was smashed afterwards. Prosecutor David Rossi said, quote, The information is stored on a box in the basement, which we believe Chris probably didn't know that. So smashing the keypad did Did nothing. nothing. Mm -hmm. The phone wires were cut on the telephone pole outside, and records at the phone company show that this happened at 4.54 a.m., and the screen on the garage window was cut. The cut screen is where investigators realized that Chris was actually the burglar that stole the laptops two, year, two years prior. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. It all just came back no. around, didn't it? Yeah. Dude, what? I know. Okay, what the mm-hmm. fuck? What? They found out that he had a secret income stream. He would steal electronics and then sell them on eBay. Which explains how he was getting all the money. Uh-huh. His account was eventually frozen because he neglected to send several items to the people after they purchased them. And God, why does that not surprise me? Right. Well, and then he also got his brother Jonathan's eBay account frozen because they both had the same address. Oh, no. So eBay was like, eh. Nope. (laughs) Oh, please don't ever do that because I kind of like eBay. (laughs) Okay, I will not ever, like, sell fraudulent stolen Uh, items on eBay to get you locked down. Awesome. Thank you. Scout's honor. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) You're welcome. He then sent emails to the customers posing as his brother Jonathan and said that Chris died And that's why he was unable to send the items. It's so friggin' twisted. Um, I'm gonna need a shovel to scoop my jaw off the floor. (laughs) So bad. I would lose my mind if I bought something off of there and I got a message saying they died. I would feel so bad. Oh Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is awful. Mm Mm-hmm. Dude! I know. And then he was able to steal from his fraternity brothers, and they had no idea that it was him. And they probably wouldn't ever suspect it because he always claimed to have so much money and was paying for things. Right, yeah, that makes sense. But really, he's like, no, I'm going to steal your shit, and you guys are paying for it. It's really nice. Yeah. According to the Generation Y podcast, there was also another break-in at the vet clinic that Chris worked at oh for my many god. years. Oh my god. This and dude. what do you think was stolen? Fucking electronics for sure. Yep, it was, was laptops laptop? and phones. Yep. Uh-huh. And they couldn't figure out at the time who broke in, but they later found some of the stolen items inside the safe at the Porco's home. Oh, hmm. I wonder. 
I wonder how they could have gotten there. Right. No clue. None. (laughs) So Chris's fantasy world that he built was finally crumbling down as his friends learned that his parents were not wealthy. There was no trust fund. He wasn't a millionaire, and he did not have a house in North Carolina. That would be so much to take in. So much. It's devastating to find out that someone did that to you, that everything's a lie. Me trying to, like, picture if one of my friends was literally lying to me the entire time. Like, I would be so pissed and devastated and Mm -hmm. lots of emotions. Yeah. In reality... Chris was on academic probation at the University of Rochester and was suspended first semester of his sophomore year. No. Uh Uh-huh. And he told his parents that a professor lost his final and that's why he flunked out. What? Are you for real? Oh, yeah. It's not his fault. The professor just did this. Why do I keep saying it like that? I don't know. I was actually wondering the same thing. (laughs) Professor. (laughs) I I don't know what's happening. (laughs) I don't know. So he went to a community college for a short amount of time, but forged a transcript of community college grades and used it to get readmitted (gasps) to the University of Rochester. Oh, my God. It just keeps (gasps) spiraling here. He got back into school and made his parents believe that the school really had made a mistake with his final. He told them that the school was going to waive his tuition due to the unfair suspension. Yo! So now he's got himself a new problem here, right? He forged his father's signature on a loan for the tuition, so the check was for uh, $31,000. Oh, boy. And then he started dodging all phone calls because he didn't want to get, you know, in trouble for this. And the only way that his family could communicate with him was through email. And this actually works out great for the case because Everything he left, is documented. Yeah, a huge paper trail. Yep. They've got it all. So his father, Peter Porco sent him an email regarding a late car payment notice, and Chris responds with, quote, Yo, Pops, I was waiting for my new credit card to come through. The payment is now set up <laughs> on automatic deduction, so there shouldn't be any problems. Love, Chris. Oh. Are you laughing at my Yo, Pops? Oh, you, you're so loud. <laughs> yo, Pops. That took me out. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. (laughs) I was not ready for that. Oh my god, I'm crying. Oh, yo, pops. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my god. So his mother, Joan, was willing to give her son the benefit of the doubt, but unfortunately. He was lying. There was no automatic deduction set up. He had no plans of paying these debts. His father, Peter, became very worried about the situation because he was receiving late notices from multiple companies. So he ended up just paying all of the bills. He did this over and over. Oh, that sucks. He kept cleaning up Christopher's messes financially. 
but he soon realized that things were worse than he thought. His own credit score was now at risk because his name was signed to the loan that was not being paid because he didn't know about right. it. Peter knew that he could not call Chris, so he emailed him and he told him that he had a lot of explaining to do and it's really time to stop the bullshit. He told him, you need to call my office right away. Peter and Joan were just devastated when they found out about the forgery. They couldn't believe how far Chris had taken things and how far he had gone with his lies. But they wanted to talk it through. Just one week prior to the attacks, Joan sent an email pleading with him to please call her. Days before Peter Porco was murdered, he canceled the $31,000 loan and he threatened to contact the police. He said he was going to be forced to file forgery affidavits if Chris pulled a stunt like this ever again. Well, Chris didn't want his lies to come to an end. He had worked so long to create an image of a perfect life and he wanted people to continue believing that he was rich. So that's when he decided he had to murder his parents so that they could not go to the police. From everything that I read and watched, I do not believe that they actually were going to go to the police. And it's not necessarily something that matters. No, and I don't think it is. And I I think that there's a, I mean, high, I don't know them, obviously, but I'm yeah. going to say there was probably a high likelihood they weren't going to because, you know, parents want to work it out. They do. And his mom was actually emailing him and giving him several ways out of this situation. Yeah. She was asking him if he was having a mental breakdown and if she could help him. Um, yeah, that doesn't feel like they were going to go running off to the police. Wait, he could have easily said, like, yeah, I am. You know, something's wrong. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. And it's all this pressure. And they probably would have just paid the bill like they did with everything else. Yeah, well, clearly what he did kept the police on, huh? Right. It worked real well. Fabulous. Yeah. And in fact, his father had even written the following to him in an email after they said that they were upset about the forgery. He said, quote, we may be disappointed with you, but your mother and I still love you and care about your future. So they did not want to ruin his future. That is really sad. I know. Sarah Fisher, who was Chris's girlfriend at the time of the attacks, said that her sister was riding home on the school bus. And she saw the yellow tape blocking off the crime scene at the Porco's residence. As soon as she got home, she sent Sarah an IM telling her something happened. Like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. (laughs) Is that outdated? People don't IM anymore? I, I, uh, (laughs) yeah, do not think that's what they call it anymore. No. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) Well, Sarah forwarded the message over to Chris. And he said that he would contact the police in an hour or so. He messaged her back later and he said, my parents are dead. Oh, my God. And Sarah was called to testify later. And she said that she didn't form an opinion until she heard the whole case presented and realized all the lies that Chris had told. Oh, yeah. But it's like such a weird scenario that... That's all he comes back is, my, my parents, parents are, are dead. dead. Oh, okay. 
Like, um, what do you even... Yeah. Also, I found that a little strange because he says that he found out because a reporter called him. Oh, yeah. But then suddenly you realize that Sarah had messaged him and he said, I'll get to this in an hour. So how did you learn about this? Which one is That's it? That's so flipping weird, too. I mean, I guess it's not super relevant, but it's also a lie. One of them is I a mean, lie. I mean, everything a lot is a lie yeah. with him, so. True. Mm-hmm. You're catching on. Joan Porco has completely supported Chris during the case and told everybody that he is not the killer, and she has begged people to find the real person behind this and leave her son alone. She said, quote, Christopher is the product of a loving and supportive family. Since his very early days, he has demonstrated a gentle, kind, and generous spirit. She said, quote, With every ounce of my being, I cannot accept that Christopher could have or would have chosen to butcher us. I believe him to be innocent with all my heart. And that, to me, is just devastating. It is, and I think it's really hard, too, because she could have easily blocked that out. Yeah. Being his parent. Mm Mm-hmm. And not wanting to remember that. Or lose another person. Right. She lost her husband. So, like, that could have been something that was so blocked out, you know, as soon as it happened. And you don't ever want to believe that your own son could do this to you. No, and that's exactly why I say that. Like, that's very possible. I mean, it's possible she doesn't remember. It's possible. I get it. It's possible he didn't do it. Right. Um, But, like, I do feel... It would be very difficult not to block something like that out after going through something like that. And to this day, she has absolutely no recollection of the attack, but she believes the attacker came to the house on another occasion, too. Oh. Joan Porco says that she saw a shadowy figure outside of her home just two weeks prior to the attacks. She told a family friend that the motion sensor lights went off when the stranger was in the driveway And this is something the police did not follow up on. She did write a letter to the Times Union and asked police to go after the real killer. After this, some anonymous letters were sent to the paper and they were allegedly from the real killer. This anonymous person said that they were responsible for attacking Joan and Peter Porco and they were responsible for another unsolved murder in the town. Um, as far as I could find, there was nothing that came of that, so I don't know. Yeah. But it seems like weird timing. Like, she sends something in, and all of a sudden, the real killer's like, oh, then I gotta follow up Somebody always comes out of the woodwork thinking they're funny. Yeah, so. And it's quite disgusting. It is. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris Porco walked out of jail after friends and relatives put together the mandated $250,000 cash bail. He flashed a smile at the photographers and said, quote, I feel pretty good, actually, and I just want you to know I'm innocent. He was going to stay with Elaine Laforte, the veterinarian that Chris had worked with for years. This is the same person he stole from. And now she says that he is like a son to her. Elaine said, quote, I'm aware of evidence that they did find at the crime scene that makes me believe that it was not Christopher. Now, the evidence that she's referring to is a single fingerprint that was found just inches from where the telephone wires were cut. We do not know 
who the fingerprint was outside. To. Correct. Were like anybody could have freaking touched it walking by. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So it's like one of those things where they couldn't use it to rule him in or rule him out, but yeah. she's using that one piece of evidence to be like, okay, well then it's not him. And that, I guess when I'm you carry, her. gotta cling to what you yeah. can. Everyone's gonna have their own belief system. So, and again, we don't know. People think it's not him. Yeah. On June 27th, 2006, Chris Porco went on trial. It was relocated to Goshen, Orange County, New York, so that he had a fair trial on charges of second-degree murder for killing his father and second-degree attempted murder for the severe wounding and disfigurement of his mother. The trial lasted 21 days. His brother, Jonathan... Jonathan... (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, are you okay? Jonathan... His brother, Jonathan, once uh, helped post bail for his brother when he was initially charged for the crime. When he testified, he was described as being very icy. He said that the family kept an axe in the garage that looked real similar to the one used in his parents' attack. Jonathan was shown a picture of the axe, and he said that it had a marking from the local hardware store. He said that his relationship with Chris was strained, and he was able to confirm that both of them knew that they were the beneficiaries of their parents' life insurance policies. Oh, my God. There it fucking is. You knew it was coming. It had to. Oh, my God. Every time. Every (laughs) I know. Time. It's always the motive, right? Every time. Well, they had talked about it over dinner before, so they both were aware of this. And he explained that the security system was installed in the Porco's home after the burglary during Thanksgiving weekend in 2002, and only the immediate family knew the four-digit code. Yeah, because that's usually who knows it. Well, exactly. Yeah. Jonathan never looked at his brother Chris while he testified, and the people in the courtroom said that that was actually very telling to them. He didn't say anything further to elaborate on his strained relationship with his brother, but his actions said it all. Dr. Mary Dombovi, a neurologist in Rochester who was treating Joan, was called to testify about why Joan may have nodded and said that Chris was the attacker. Dr. Dombovi explained that Joan could have followed very simple commands to raise her arm, but if you ask questions of memory, that's a different function of the brain entirely. She said, quote, and that is universally what is disrupted after a traumatic brain injury. She could simply have been responding to the name Christopher. The neurologist testified that it was unlikely given, um, it was unlikely given Joan's severe injuries that she could have understood what was being asked. The defense believed that prosecutors were relying hard on Joan's nod because there wasn't any forensic evidence that they could use to link Chris to the crime. There wasn't any bloody footprints or fingerprints at the scene. They believed that the alarm was actually disabled by Peter Porco because he did have a habit of shutting down the alarm to bring the dog out, and he would neglect to put it back on when he went inside. That is something that has been confirmed. However, if that's the case, I would question why the attacker would smash the alarm if it was already disabled. And why did it go off then? Exactly. 
Like, he knew when he was letting the dog out. Yeah. You're not going to let it go off for those few seconds because anybody with an alarm knows the second that fucking thing goes off, you're annoyed. Oh, absolutely. Like, when you accidentally set it off, you're just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Why did I do this to myself? That makes zero sense to me. Yeah. And I, there's nothing you can say that would really make me believe that Peter was the one that did that portion of it. Yep. Earlier, we talked about how a yellow Jeep was spotted on the thruway on the night of the attacks. The police did go through all of the thruway tickets to see if they could find one that Chris Porco had touched. They were able to find a ticket that had mitochondrial DNA that matched his, but this is something that gets debated in court. Terry Melton from Mitotyping Industries said that it's a very high probability, like 99% by some estimates, that the DNA on the throughway toll ticket matches Chris Porco. The defense attorney disagrees and said that the sample only contained 85 of the 783 base pairs of chromosomal material that make up a DNA profile. So the defense is saying that it's just precise enough, but let's talk about odds here. What are the odds that a teller remembers a yellow Jeep coming through on the night of the attacks, and in that specific stack of tickets, they find one ticket at the time that even has a partial match? Right. Uh, Come on. Again, and back to the, it's a yellow Jeep, like it's something that you remember. Right. There is a car that I pass. On my way to work some days, and it's, like, spray-painted all over, and it Mm -hmm. is so flipping cool. Yeah. Every time I see it, I remember exactly where I saw it last, because I'm, like, always looking for it, because I'm like, that thing is so cool! There are certain cars that I see around town that I will, like, always take notice of. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I just saw you last Thursday. I just saw you this day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you just make mental notes of it, because it stands out. And when I see bright-colored cars like that, I always... Like, I'm drawn to it for a few seconds. And, mm-hmm. like, if you ask me at the end of the day, like, hey, did you see that yellow car that was driving through town? I'd probably be like, yeah, I did, mm-hmm. because I'm going to remember that. Exactly. I agree. The defense also believes that it was Peter himself who put the key in the front door. He was barely conscious, and it's possible that he believed he had locked himself out of the house and grabbed the spare key to get back in. There's a problem with that theory, though. The blood droplets stop in the doorway, and they do not go to the flower pot where the spare key was kept. Yep. That's pretty pretty damning. <laughs> I'm a, not going to lie. It's a problem. It, it is. <laughs> the defense also explained away the neighbor's story about seeing Chris's yellow Jeep that night. They said, no, 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 that's a false memory. They say that he was desperately trying to help the police, but there were two yellow Jeeps that travel often through that neighborhood, and he probably just saw the other one. Ah. Uh, Did he mm-hmm. see the other one in the driveway? That's what I'm saying. Like, completely parked, yeah. Right. The defense points towards the mystery person that Joan saw a few weeks before the attack. Christopher's lawyers have another theory. They think... You're going to like this one. They think the mob might have been targeting the Porcos in retaliation for the alleged snitching by Peter's distant relative, Frankie the Fireman Porco, a convicted member of New York's Mafia. That is the stretchiest stretch (laughs) I have probably ever heard. Uh Uh-huh. 
It's like, oh, because you have some tie to this person in the mafia, that's obviously what it was. But I don't know what they're retaliating Truly for. trying to find that tie, though, was right. impressive. I'm it not going to lie. I'll give a little credit for that one. Like, that is pretty friggin' impressive, uh-huh. but I know it is a <laughs> stretchy like, stretch. As soon as I saw that, I was like, shut up. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> The verdict came back in just six hours, and everyone was shocked that it came back so quickly. The jury said that even though the evidence was very circumstantial, it was just too compelling. Too much of it fit into the timeline, and Chris did not have a good alibi. They didn't see any remorse from him. Joan Porco was devastated when she heard that her son had been convicted. But the jurors did want her to know that the nod played absolutely no role in the verdict. One juror explained that, quote, We believe that she didn't know what she was nodding to, that she had no idea what the question was. We threw that out. We dismissed that completely. Which I do appreciate that they gave her that peace of mind. So that she wasn't blaming herself. Yeah. Yeah. Chris was sentenced to 50 years to life. A New York appellate court ended up lifting a judge's ban on Lifetime's airing or marketing of a TV movie after Christopher claimed a violation of his right of publicity. The network was being prevented from showing Romeo Killer, the Chris Porco story. Chris Porco cited a New York publicity rights statute that requires permission from a subject for the use of their image for, quote, advertising purposes or the purpose of trade. A judge of the Supreme Court of New York accepted the argument and issued a temporary restraining order that would prevent the movie from being aired on Lifetime. He said that Lifetime, quote, appears to concede this movie is fictionalized. Lifetime's legal team shot back and said that would essentially allow anyone portrayed in a movie to stop it by claiming it's fiction. The Lifetime legal team also said that Chris Porco needed to prove that they had damaged his reputation, and they just didn't see how that's possible when he already was convicted and serving time in prison. Yeah. The judge's injunction was lifted, and Lifetime called the project the Lifetime Original Movie Chris Porco Doesn't Want You to See. Oh, no! (laughs) Stop! Okay. They're snarky asses. I love that. And they also aired a documentary called Beyond the Headlines, The Real Romeo Killer. I love that. That he doesn't want you to see. I know. I thought that was too good. Well, now I have things I need to watch, so. Yes, you do. (laughs) But that is the story of Chris Porco. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And it just truly, going through it, and oh, it's so horrifying because I we always hate the stories with the axes. Yeah. And it's something, you know, that was typically more um, back in the day. Yes, and I feel like any, well, a majority of the time that axes are used, it is personal. Yeah. And, like, yeah. I mean, just, oh, Peter getting up and going through his everyday life. Not knowing. And again, yeah, how awful is it? Because, like, what 
And then paying his yeah. son's ticket, not realizing he had just been attacked. I mean, like, obviously their phone line was out and everything. Right. But like, yeah. What so if he, he had gone have. across the street? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it just it's really devastating that his body automatically went to his morning routine. Yeah, because I have I mean, we have no idea how long. He spent no. going through the house. You know, he was like in the bathroom. Then he goes down the stairs. And he goes to make his lunch for work. Yeah. And he's unloading the dishwasher. That's a lot of time. You know? God, I'd be pissed if my last few minutes were spent unloading a dishwasher. <laughs> yeah. Would be so mad. Yeah. That would suck. It would. It truly, <laughs> truly would. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. All right, so make sure to follow us on any of our podcast apps. Tell us the stories you want to hear. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Leave us a five-star review if you love us. Tell your friends. Tell your cats. Um, Bye. bye.